This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu's Books podcast. I'm Narayan Lakshman, your host for today. I'm an associate editor at the Hindu, and I'm very pleased to uh, introduce to you as a, my guest on the show today, Chidanand Rajgatta. Chidanand, or Chidu as I've known him for many years, is the uh, U.S. bureau chief for the Times of India, and he's a veteran journalist. He has covered all manner of political stories going back several decades, shall we say, and he has been writing on everything from immigration to, you know, the sort of major shifts that have happened in U.S. politics over the recent years even. And actually, it's a real honor to have Chidu on podcast today because he's going to be talking about his book, Phenomenal Woman, which is about Kamala Harris, the vice president. It's uh, HarperCollins is the publisher. And in this book, Chidu not only talks about Kamala Harris herself and her antecedents, her links with India, how she evolved through the rough and tumble of U.S. politics. But through that story and narrative, he also touches upon some of the fascinating tectonic shifts that are happening in U.S. politics today. So to pick apart all of that and also, of course, to talk about more what is in his book, I welcome Chidu. Chidu, nice to have you here today. Journalism is often described as the first draft of history, Chidu, and this timely book is very much written in that ethos. How do you see Kamala Harris, who you describe as the most consequential and powerful veep in U.S. history, redefining American political history even as we witness it unfolding? Right. So uh, as you said, this is history still unfolding. So I'd say you're right. This is the first draft and I'd probably say it's an early first, early first draft. You know, Kamala Harris has been in uh, public life uh, for uh, quite some time, but her initial uh, years were spent in uh, California, as the book details. Her political life and uh, career began in California. And she transitioned to the national stage relatively recently, only in the, around 2016 when she was elected senator. And even as a senator, she did not com- complete her full term. She was a senator for just four years of her six-year term before she dived into the presidential election and then was you know, catapulted into the vice presidency. So it, her political uh, career is still, uh, I'd say, in its infancy, even though she's a vice president and conceivably could be the president. Or as they say, she's just a heartbeat away from the presidency. So like you said, it's a first draft of history, but history itself will take some time. Even assuming that uh, she uh, finishes her vice presidency creditably or uh, moves on to even higher office, it'll take some time for uh, history itself to record and assess her success or failure as a politician. So I'd say we are looking at the Kamala story unfolding you know, as we speak. So... As you said, in a sense, it is an infancy of a career that she's on, the phase that she's in. And yet she is, I would say, one of the most sort of highly accomplished infants in that sense. And, you know, your book covers pretty much every phase uh, from her early life in uh, Oakland, California, to drawing inspiration for civil rights activism at Howard University, her rise as from assistant district attorney to attorney general in California, where she got her reputation as a tough prosecutor. And then, of course, as you said, a rising junior uh, senator, a rising star who made a big impression in some key hearings in the Trump administration. And finally, what is happening right now before us as vice president. So taking a step back, how would you characterize her evolution 
through these phases as a leader and you know just give us your reflections on what kind of a potential president she might make in that regard right so she she has come through through a really tough political ecosystem as you can imagine and you've been here you you know uh, the system how it works uh, california itself is is the largest state you know population wise and uh, many people think that she she's an accidental vice president in the sense that she ran for presidency but did not do very well and despite her failure and dropping out of the race biden picked her as her, his running mate so li- she literally sort of won on the coattails of the president but what we need to remember is predating that she won two statewide offices in california which is uh, an immense state in the sense that it has a population of 40 million it's it's as large as say canada in terms of population and it's a very powerful state you know as we know it's often been said that if california was an independent country it would probably be the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world so to win two statewide elections in in this state first as attorney general and then she became senator is quite an accomplishment i say this many people have asked me so what is so phenomenal about her why why is she phenomenal and i thought long and hard about this question which uh, you know the, the term that i used in the title of the book one of course you know phenomenal woman is is a poem by maya angelo arguably the one of the greatest american poets which celebrates women and womanhood but also i thought her personal journey was truly phenomenal i mean i could have said it's phenomenal journey but i think we have to separate kamala harris the politician with kamala harris the personal story and the personal story is truly phenomenal and i'll explain why i mean here is as we know the united states has had i mean 240 years of history it has had 45 male presidents 40 of the 40 44 of them white male presidents and there's always been the sense that you know it's a for all its professed liberalism and progressive uh, attributes it's still a very patriarchal society you know of say the nearly 200 countries in the world at least 60 including many in africa and in the developing world have had female leaders female presidents and prime ministers and top executives but not the united states and it's taken a long time you know to breach this uh, glass ceiling uh, i wouldn't say it's breached yet but we're close to it and in 2016 hillary clinton came close to it but a very archaic and patriarchal system of you know the electoral college system uh, denied her the presidency and given this background for kamala harris who's not only not white but of immigrant stock daughter of uh, you know two students you, we know that her mother you know was from india and her dad was from jamaica they came here as students and kamala harris grew up you know as a child of immigrants and not just child of immigrants but also because her parents separated and divorced she grew up literally she was brought up by a single mother she and her sister maya and for her to journey through california you know politics and public life and make it to the doorstep of white house is uh, truly a phenomenal journey and i thought it was worth recognizing uh, you know this journey in the title itself and like i said her her political career is still unfolding we don't know where it will go but already what she has accomplished in terms of achieving high office in the united states is quite remarkable right and uh, you know what you say is so true about the journey versus the person and i think your book also delves fairly into a fair amount of detail shedding light on her antecedents on her, the stock that she comes from her both her mother and her father certainly of interest to us also shamla gopal and her mother and her roots in india 
And uh, interestingly to me, what the book was sort of shedding, you know, new information on for me is also how much she embraced black culture, African-American culture. Right. Her and her nuclear family defined themselves in those terms. And, you know, that's something I think a lot of even Indian Americans or even Indians grappled with or tried to understand better in the aftermath of her nomination. So could you explain a bit more about how you think she, that is Ms. Harris, views her racial and cultural heritage? And, you know, do you think she also represents the sort of the crest of a multiracial wave that's pushing through U.S. politics today? Absolutely. I, you nailed it. I think she is truly representative of uh, the diversity of America today and a diversity which, of course, as we all know, is being challenged by an uptick of nativism. But uh, going back to you know her mother and uh, in the book, actually, I spent uh, considerable time tra- tracking her mother and her journey uh, to the U.S. And her mother is also truly phenomenal. In fact, I was tempted uh, to title one of the chapters Phenomenal <laughs> Woman. Uh, and the book itself, I thought, could do with the title of another Maya Angelou poem called Still I Rise because, you know, it's possible that Kamala herself would still rise. But yeah, it's the story begins with her mother and her mother, it's, it's really remarkable and th- these are stories which, which are relatively unknown including Kamala's own book she doesn't go deep into it but I found that her mother actually as we all know she was t- uh, Tamilian a Tamil uh, Brahmin family Iyer family but they lived in Delhi Shimla Bombay all over the place uh, because her, her grandfather served uh, in the government of India and Kamala's mother Shamala at 19 came to America on a scholarship which she pretty much you know won on her own she, she hardly even told her parents that she was applying for U.S. colleges. And I actually found a documentation, which is quite remarkable. You know, uh, she won a scholarship of $3,800, which is a significant amount in 1959, uh, to study, you know, biochemistry at, uh, and nutrition at Berkeley. And she flew out of Calcutta because her dad, that's Kamala's grandfather, Shamla's father, was serving in Kolkata at that time. And uh, she flew east, uh, flew in actually via Honolulu. I actually found documentation. Her entry stamp is in Honolulu. And she lands in Berkeley on September 16, 1958. And the amazing story is right off the bat or right off the boat or right off the plane, whatever you know expression you want to use, she meets a black activist while standing in line you know, for her admission and they start talking. And this Tamil, 19-year-old Tamil Iyer girl gets interested in you know black culture straight off the bat or straight off the plane. A lot of people assume that Kamala's blackness comes from her father, Donald Harris, who was uh, another graduate student from Jamaica. But no, I found that actually Kamala's mother got interested in black history, black culture, black activism in Berkeley at least two and a half years before she met Donald Harris. And that I found uh, very striking. The other thread in the story, which, uh, you know, unrecorded and which I discovered to my absolute surprise, was a very influential figure in Kamala's life is uh, an economist named uh, Dr. Ajit Singh, who was a contemporary of her mother and father. Ajit Singh came to Howard University, which as you know, uh, you lived here in Washington, D.C. It's just down the road from uh, me. And Howard is a predominantly black university. And Ajit Singh came to Howard University to study economics. And uh, after uh, studying here, Ajit Singh goes to Berkeley and uh, becomes friends with Kamala's parents, both father and mother, primarily father. And Kamala's mother, Shamala, actually met Donald Harris through Ajit Singh. Uh, I mean, they were, they were a trio. They, they hung out together. And in fact, 
I found that their friends, their drawing room friends in that time uh, included Amartya Sen, who was teaching in Berkeley at that time, and uh, Lord Meghna Desai. Meghna Desai actually told me that th- this was the core group which used to go, you know, and demonstrate, you know, there were a lot of agitations those days, uh, anti-Vietnam War, you know, Cuba, a lot of leftist causes. So Kamala grew up in a household which was activist, which included Indian leftists, Indian socialists, and black activists. And that was the foundation. And later on, Kamala's parents moved to the Midwest. They spent about five or six years in the Midwest. And then her parents separated. I could only surmise that uh, the, the pressures of uh, academia and their divergent paths caused some kind of schism. And Kamala and her sister Maya come back to Berkeley with, with their mother, who returned to Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. And when they came back to Berkeley and Oakland is when that blackness and uh, integration in the black ecosystem became even stronger. Because here was a single mom who's Indian who checks into a neighborhood which is predominantly black, which all her neighbors were black. And she worked in a laboratory as a scientist. She worked long hours. So the two little girls, Kamala and Maya, their caretakers were predominantly black. You know, like we have aunties in India. The aunties here except uh, happen to be black not Indian. And uh, so the story goes that uh, when Shamla used to work late, uh, the girls typically spent time with their black neighbors. Uh, and on Sundays, you know, when Shamla was probably exhausted after a week's, you know, work and spent much of the time at home cooking and cleaning, she'd send her daughters with, you know, the black neighbors to black churches. And that was how they go and sing in the black choir and stuff like that. And the sense I got and from accounts uh, from, you know, neighbors and associates was the girls became gradually integrated into the black community and uh, Shamala embraced it because uh, there were no Indian neighbors there. There were no Indian aunties. You know, in India, we have a lot of support system with aunts and ayas and uh, uncles and grandparents. Here, here's a single woman bringing up two young daughters and it was a black community which uh, supported and nurtured and nourished them. And that sense of, you know, gratitude remained with Kamala and Maya for a long time, uh, till now, I'd say. Of course, you know, the father was also uh, black, Jamaican, and she also has fondness for her Caribbean heritage. It's not so overt, but her primary identity as black comes from this background. No, that's really fascinating as to, you know, the extent to which uh, Shamla Gopalan herself embraced this. And then literally, as you said, in their circumstances, Kamala Harris and her sister were brought up in this culture and nurtured by it even. So that's a really interesting insight. So uh, speaking of culture and sort of the uniqueness of uh, different cultures, tucked deep into your book, you throw in a delightful chapter on Momala's kitchen, Idli Mines and Dosa Matter. So tell us about how Ms. Harris's tryst with culinary adventuring has touched the souls of so many uh, in the cynical world of politics. Yeah, so, you know, we hardly ever hear about, uh, you know, presidents and vice presidents and their, you know, culinary preferences. Uh, you were here during the Obama years. So, you know, Obama loved to cook all kinds of stuff, including, you know, you talk about making dal. But uh, Kamala is obviously far more accomplished. And it all, again, goes back to her mother. She talks about her, you know, mother's interest in cooking and the fact that the mother would insist that the girls help out in the kitchen and learn how to cook. And uh, when Shamala 
Kamala obviously cooked uh, South Indian, you know, cuisine, which was her natural this thing. But she also learned uh, other stuff. And Kamala, growing up, seems to have learned a lot of other cuisines, you know, mixing with other uh, cultures and particularly black soul food and literally everything else. Uh, you know, she has a very wide uh, range. Interesting thing is that one of the things I found was Shamla when she was in India before she came to the US used to sing Carnatic music. And I found actually that uh, she had won prizes. I think it was in the Delhi Tamil Sangam. And uh, in fact, she there is one episode where she receives prize from then Vice President Radhakrishnan. And I found that, uh, by the way, Shamala's brother, who's Kamala's uncle, Bala, Bala Chandran Gopalan, I, I'm sure you, the name is familiar to you and to your listeners. Shamala's uncle, Bala, was actually a correspondent with the Hindu. Yes. Developmental correspondent in the Hindu. And as it turns out, he actually came to the US uh, just day before yesterday after a two-year break. I met him yesterday. We <laughs> exchanged you know, notes. And Bala actually told me that when Shamla came to uh, the US, she used to be a Carnatic singer. But uh, over a period of time, when she returned in this early 60s, 63, 64, she, by then she had met Donald Harris and she had actually started listening to, you know, jazz and blues and, you know, uh, other Western music. And somewhere I, I believe the Carnatic thing faded. But the food, you know, habits and South Indian food preparation, that those things remained. Kamla imbibed from it, but she also expanded. She has an enormous uh, range of culinary interests. <laughs> in fact, we now live in a time where the right-wing constantly attacks uh, Kamala Harris over the most trivial issues. And one of the stories a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago during Thanksgiving was how she went shopping in, uh, I think it was Chicago, and she bought $400 worth of pots and pans, <laughs> which was enough ammunition for, you know, right-wing trolls to attack her saying, what is the vice president doing, you know, buying such expensive pots and pans? But it, it, she's just an accomplished person in the, in the kitchen with a wide range. During the election campaign, I'd often hear stories about how with her her campaign staff. She'd drop by not into these big fancy restaurants, but she'd look for the most authentic local restaurants, you know, the, the local dives, which are very famous, which only the lo locals know. And she'd actually go and eat there with the staff. And when she was leaving, she'd actually identify what was the most popular dish in that place and try and wangle the recipe from, from the owners. There were many such stories like that. So she's truly into food and she's a foodista. She's probably the first foodista. As best as I know, I mean, we all would talk about Al Gore and technology and his obsession with technology and environment. Uh, I think with Kamala, although her portfolio in terms of uh, work is range, but I, I, her passion really is food. I no, it's really nice how you bring out that the color in, in, her, in her life and it actually, you show the connections that she makes through food in politics even and, you know, in, in just the rest of her life. And that's, uh, that's an added dimension. Right. Yeah. And one of the things I've noticed is this, so it's not just, you know, food and cooking. It's not just culinary thing in the broader, you know, she has a broader range of interest in food security. One of the things I've noticed is she and her husband, Doug Emhoff, they're out and out uh, about very often in Washington, D.C. area, looking into food kitchens and you know, soup kitchens and so on, trying to ensure you know that people are well fed and eating healthy. She and now, of course, uh, you know, her, her family is very eclectic in the sense that uh, she herself is of mixed heritage and now she's married into a Jewish family and actually I found today Bala Balachandran Gopal his, his wife is Mexican so their daughter would be Kamala's I guess what cousin is half Mexican so it's a very eclectic family and they eat a wide range of food but also there's a lot of conversation about you know healthy food and food security so she's quite remarkable in the sense that vice presidents have typically been unidimensional in, in my view at least going back uh, we all knew Dick Cheney was sort of a the defense guy because he was George 
George Bush's vice president and George Bush was a relative novice in the White House when he came. And so and because Cheney came from a defense background, uh, he handled defense. And before that, uh, we know that Gore was all all internet and all, I mean, all technology and all environment. But uh, with Kamala, in terms of work profile, you know, which is another thing, the reason why I say she is the most consequential and powerful vice president in U.S. history is the range of work that she has been entrusted with. So, I mean, let's set aside this food, passion, personal thing for a moment, but on uh, on a larger canvas, the range of work she's handling, starting with voting rights to, you know, COVID vaccine delivery to space force. I mean, she just has an incredible amount of work interested to her. And that, to me, makes her arguably the most powerful vice president in U.S. history. No, that's really interesting. And I was also, I mean, I noted what you said about, you know, the right wing sometimes is just waiting to find some kind of a point on which to attack her while she continues to be this multidimensional leader. Do you think that, you know, in the current setting, especially, you know, what you talk about as a distinctive account of how the politics of the US is shifting, tectonic shifts are happening uh, since the rise of Trump, uh, Donald Trump and his MAGA movement to make America great again. Do you think that, you know, there is this casual sexism and even racism in many quarters? How has Kamala's journey and the inspiration she got from, you know, you talk about Shirley Chisholm and Geraldine Ferraro. Has that given her the chops to take on this world and, you know, thrive and make a success of it, of this male-dominated arena? Yes, absolutely. I think that and the fact that her own personal journey, like I said, she, I think, has acquired a lot of her strength and resilience from her mother. I mean, let's again go back to her mother and a 19-year-old comes to the U.S. on her own, grinds it out, her, her PhD. I mean, literally, she, she earned her PhD while pregnant, while Kamala was born. And then six years later, she's separated from her husband and she has two young girls. There, I think Kamala was six or seven and Maya was, uh, what, five or four when four or three actually when when they divorced and uh, she brings up these young girls through really difficult circumstances and that you know I think infused in her with very early strength and resilience and then of course coming through California I mean it's it's a tough state and you know it, this is a state which had Ronald Reagan as governor, I mean, very prominent male figures and also very powerful, prominent female figures. You know, Diane Feinstein was from his, uh, California, Nancy Pelosi, very powerful political forces. And for her to come through that, you know, and within one term as a senator to bid for the presidency, to run for the presidency, failing there, but still, you know, hanging in, uh, getting on the Biden ticket. She's tough. And in fact, one of the stories is the 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 reason Biden chose her. So Biden had a range of options picking a vice president. Uh, they were, he, he committed very early to picking a woman as a running mate. And for a long time, there was a lot of speculation. There were several women uh, in the running, but I think the choice eventually fell on Kamala. The story I heard was because she's the one who could clap back at Trump. And as we all know, Trump has this habit of beating up or beating down on women. Demeaningly, he he has an openly abrasive, sexist, misogynist outlook. It's fairly transparent. It's not a secret. Some women, you know, handle it and live through it. Some many don't. And the calculation, I believe, in the Trump camp was if anybody could clap back at uh, Trump, it would be Kamala Harris. And sure enough, very early in the campaign, even during her presidential campaign, if you remember, there's one very famous exchange when Kamala dropped out of the presidential race because she fared fairly poorly. Trump tweeted, it was a very sneering tweet, which said something like, goodbye, Kamala, we're going to miss you. And she responded, her response was really stinking. She said, don't worry, Mr. President, I'll see you at your trial. 
Yeah. You know, that that's the kind of clapback he's capable of. And uh, yeah, sure enough, I don't think Trump tinkered with her very much after that. And of course, we don't know what will happen in 2024, where many people expect Trump to run again. We don't know whether Kamala is going to win the Democratic nomination or whether uh, Biden will run a second term and she'll continue to be a running mate for a second term. But yeah, the thing is, she's, she's tough. She's resilient. She doesn't back down. And we're seeing over the past uh, year or so that she's been in the vice president's office. I mean, incredible attacks, many of them sexist, racist, but uh, she's survived it all. And uh, yeah, I'd say the jury's still out how she'll, how history will record her vice presidency. But one thing it will record is uh, she was, she was not caught down. Okay, that's interesting. And uh, speaking again of the, uh, you know, her looking upward at the highest echelons of DC politics. What's your assessment of how she thinks about in the foreign policy context, though it may not be much of a portfolio for a vice president at this point, of India? I mean, not just given her personal roots and links, but also in terms of the broader, you know, bilateral issues. I think there was that one point where, you know, I think it was the external affairs minister. There was a meeting cancelled in DC because of certain, you know, lawmakers' presence there was not sort of welcome. And, and then she stepped in and made a comment there too. So there, there are, as you know, there, you know, there are two sides, even in Indian politics. I mean, many sides, but two distinctive sides as well in terms of these issues. Uh, where does she stand on that? How would she, what's her position in that debate? Well, I think it's by now it's well known that, you know, temperamentally she's a liberal, you know, lawmaker. She has a liberal background. And uh, India in its current avatar, the government of India, you know, is on the other side. So ideologically, there, there were differences and that. This became clear even when she was senator. Uh, but I think uh, her, her time in office has sort of tempered her. And I think she recognizes also Indian sensitivities now. So as you know, when Prime Minister Modi was here, they had a fairly good meeting. And we also know that she she gave you know her thoughts on uh, human rights and issues like that which you know india is very sensitive about and we of course conveyed our you know views it's it's now i think at a place where the honest exchange of views you know both countries have their warts it's not as if the united states is unsullied in this respect and then there's a healthy respect that you know both sides and both countries have to uh, are a work in progress yeah but uh, the the interesting thing is traditionally vice presidents have not been sort of foreign policy wonks i mean except maybe cheney in the defense uh, dick cheney in the defense arena biden of course was a foreign policy veteran but so was obama for that matter so they're sort of i don't think biden got a lot of play despite him being having headed the senate foreign relations committee but with kamala for the kind of relative inexperience she has in foreign policy the amount of foreign policy work she's been interested uh, with is quite remarkable. I mean, one, of course, is the ties with the immediate neighborhood centering on migration uh, crisis. Her first trip was, of course, to Mexico and to handle that part. And then more recently, she uh, she was actually detailed to go and repair the damage Biden had <laughs> caused with the French. I found that interesting. But the India portfolio itself, I think she probably would cede to the State Department and Anthony Blinken because I've always felt that lawmakers and politicians of Indian origin are a little shy about, you know, wearing their Indianness on their sleeve. So I don't expect her to be very deeply involved in, in foreign policy as regards to uh, India. But otherwise, yeah, she's, she's, like I said, she has a remarkable range of portfolios and work allocation uh, on a plate. And foreign policy is one piece of it. 
I mean, there are select areas, for instance, because she heads the Space Force, you'd expect her because U.S. and India work a lot together on defense, space, technology areas. Uh, she'd have some interest there. But specifically, I don't think she's going to be a major you know, player in U.S.-India relations. Okay. And finally, you know, getting down to the brass tacks of her potential path to the presidency. Uh, You describe accurately, of course, the office of the U.S. vice president as, quote, largely deemed inconsequential, not even ceremonial, much less a sinecure, close quote. Jahar bid to win the Democratic nomination also collapsed early, as you mentioned earlier, in, in 2019. Do you think the Democratic field and even the broader electorate is ready for a candidate with her credentials, even unprecedented though they are? Uh, they're pretty unique. But is the voting, is the population ready for her? Is America ready for her? That's, it's really a tough question. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I have the answer to this. Let's roll back a little bit. So you were here uh, during the time Obama was elected, and that was that was incredible in 2008. You know, you had 44 white male presidents, and you never thought America would come around to electing anyone uh, non-white to the White House. But it happened. It, it was like a miracle. And, and they this country elected a, you know, skinny black guy whose name actually sounded very much like Osama uh, and who had been a senator for two years. You know, two years. I mean, he was a relative novice, you know, a community activist who became a state legislator and then, um, you know, became a senator. He was hardly in the Senate for a couple of years before he jumped into the presidential race. And, well, there he was uh, defeating, you know, McCain and later in the second term, you know, Romney. Uh, These are veterans of the, you know, white Republican establishment. So, yeah, America was at that time. And then you thought, okay, Here's another glass ceiling that's going to be broken in 2016. A woman, Hillary Clinton, running all the polls showing that she's, you know, literally a shoo-in. A week before the election, there were polls that showed, what, a 93% Hillary Clinton win. You know, Trump was a no-hoper. And by a remarkable set of circumstances, you saw her denied the office. I had actually, I wouldn't say Trump won the office, but she was denied uh, the office simply by an archaic political system where they count electoral votes consequential and decide who wins the White House rather than popular votes. And Trump lost by almost 3 million popular votes, but won the White House purely by virtue of winning three states at you know by a total margin of less than 100,000. So the sense you got then was this was a pushback by, you know, the white voter base, which felt that they were losing control of the country. You know, what? You elect first a black senator as president for two terms and now a woman? How is that possible? And Trump represented that pushback, that pushback by the nativist constituency. And of course, we had this controversial election now in 2020 and Biden won. But you get the sense that America is still not ready when they denied Hillary Clinton the presidency. I don't see how you know, they will accept Kamala Harris, given her, you know, heritage. And also, remember, she she first has to win the Democratic Party nomination before she even, you know, runs for the White House. And I think within the Democratic, Democratic Party itself, there will be a lot of firefights and misgivings about uh, electability. As you know, in the US, they, they start talking about the next election and the election after. I mean, people are already talking about not just 2024, but 2028. And there's this question of, is she electable? And the nominee, typically they go for a nominee who they think is electable. And I see a struggle 
ahead, even in winning the Democratic nomination. Forget the presidency. That comes later. So yeah, she's got a tough fight. The the good news and the bad news is, I mean, she has, like I said, she's a very visible vice president in the sense the range of work interested to her makes her very visible. And if she achieves success in any one or two of this, for instance, the voting rights, you know, very, very key thing, or the border crisis, the, the migration crisis. Uh, and of course, the third big ticket item is now the space force, simply because, you know, the Chinese have literally stolen America's lunch in this area. So they have a lot of ground to retrieve. But if she handles any of this successfully, which I believe is very hard. In fact, the story is a lot of people believe Biden has just loaded her with so much work, knowing that it'll bring her down. But if she pulls it off, yeah, maybe she has a chance, but it's a very tough uphill battle. I personally, you know, don't believe that white nativist constancy in America is going to let you know, the Obama or Hillary. Kamala is literally a combination of Obama and Hillary, right? She's a woman uh, and she's of uh, colored heritage. I believe now it'll it'll take at least one or two more election cycles before this can happen. Okay, that's fascinating, Chitu. Thank you. I think, uh, you know, you've really helped us understand this person, this leader who is really shaken up American politics in a way that it hasn't happened before. Like you said, a unique combination of women as well as from a background of color and, you know, redefining the way politics happens in, in some regards in Washington and beyond. So we'll keep an eye out for that. But thank you again for talking about your book and the very, very fascinating insights that it gives us into Kamala Harris. Thank you, Nara, and it's wonderful being with you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4, at the rate thehindu.co.in. 